Remain standing for our sermon text from Isaiah chapter 8. Again, give your ear to God's infallible word. I'll read the whole chapter of Isaiah 8. Moreover, the Lord said to me, Isaiah, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hash Baz. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Then I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hash Baz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother The riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. The Lord also spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in Rezin and in Ramaliah's son, now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria, in all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces, Give ear all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Emmanuel. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Here here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law And to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light 
in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. That has passed through the land, hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, help us to see you, to see the light, and continue even through this passage, through this word, to rescue us, to give us deliverance from the darkness. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. As I said during the announcements, there is a handout if you're interested and you didn't get one. You can go back and grab one as we get started here. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes two roads. One that leads to eternal life and another that leads to eternal destruction. Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Isaiah 8 presents us with two roads, two ways of life. One road is the way of light. The other is the way of darkness. One is the way of life. The other, the way of destruction. One ends in heaven. The other in hell, eternal destruction. The only road to eternal life is Jesus Christ. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the road, the truth, and the life. That that Greek word translated way is the same one translated road elsewhere, such as in the passage that I read from Matthew 7, the two different roads. Jesus alone is the road, the way, to eternal salvation. Christ is the road to everlasting life now, just as he was in Isaiah's day. You see, Old Testament believers looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, to Christ, just as we look back to his coming. We also look forward to his second coming, but we look back for our salvation to his first coming when he went to the cross for our sins. Back in Isaiah 7, which we covered last week, we saw that King Ahaz and the rest of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, were terrified of that alliance, you remember, between Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. Syria and Israel were invading Judah in the south, and their goal was to take the head, Jerusalem, the capital city We'll see in a few minutes that they only got up to the neck. God saved the head. In the midst of this crisis, God exhorted King Ahaz not to give way to fear. God exhorts all of his people 
never to give way to fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. But Ahaz possessed no power of God, no love of God, and therefore no sound mind. He had adopted a spirit of fear rather than a posture of faith. And this led him to seek help from Assyria rather than from God. Assyria, Assyria with an A at the beginning, was the world empire. And Assyria was known for its brutality and totalitarianism. Instead of running to God, Ahaz asks Assyria to rescue him from the threats of Syria and Israel. That's like a field mouse asking a barnyard cat to protect it from a rat. At the end of the day, the, the unquenchable cat will be equally interested in eating both the mouse and the rat. After Assyria gobbles up Syria and Israel, it'll head down to Judah for the, for the second course. So the glorious Emmanuel prophecy in Isaiah 7.14, it, it seems to be eclipsed somewhat by the grim prophecy of God's judgment against Judah in the last nine verses of Isaiah 7. The first part of Isaiah 8 expands on the role that, that God has for the kingdom of Assyria, the empire of Assyria. And the first ten verses of Isaiah 8 contain three movements. First, Assyria will destroy Judah's enemies. Second, Assyria will destroy Judah. Third, Assyria will be destroyed by God. Let's look at those three movements in the first ten verses. In the first movement, Assyria apparently comes to the rescue of Judah by destroying Judah's enemies, Syria and Israel. Verses 1 to 4 center on this odd, mysterious name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means speed to the spoil, hasten to the plunder. And the first thing God tells Isaiah to do is to write this name on a scroll, on a tablet, on, on a placard, so that all, that all the people could read it. And then he even appoints two witnesses to tell the people, maybe that, that didn't see it at the time, to tell them when he actually made this placard, because it's going to have to do with future prophecy. Then I, Isaiah goes into his wife, and they have a son, and the Lord tells Isaiah to give the boy this name. That means speed to the, speed to the spoil, hasten to the plunder. Or more simply, as one scholar put it, hurry, spoil, be swift, plunder. It's an imperative. The meaning of all of this is that Assyria is about to swoop in and swiftly conquer Judah's two dreaded enemies, Syria and Israel. This boy with the long name, Isaiah's son, is not Emmanuel, but like Emmanuel, 
the boy is a sign child. He's a sign of something that's going to happen, happen very soon. He's a, he's a living timepiece for the fulfillment of God's purposes through Assyria. So the, before the boy is old enough to, to cry out, Daddy, Mommy, Assyria will have already begun to take the riches of Syria and the spoil of Israel. And that's exactly what happened within the next year or two in 734 and 733 B.C. while Maher Shalal Hashbaz was still little, still tiny, the Assyrian emperor Tiglath-Pileser III marched down to Palestine along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and he, he cut off Egyptian aid to the north so that he cut off aid to the Palestinian nations. And in the process, he conquered Syria fully, and he took control of several cities and territories in the northern kingdom of Israel. And of course, a little over a decade later, he went on to conquer the rest of Israel and Samaria and and took them into captivity. So that's the first movement. Assyria will destroy Judah's enemies, just, just as Judah asked, right? Well, verses 5 to 8 describe the second movement. Assyria will destroy Judah. And God gives reasons for this in verse 6. These people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly, and they rejoice in Rezin and in Ramaliah's son, who is Pekah, the king of Israel. Now, The very next verse, verse 7, likens the king of Assyria and all his glory to a giant, powerful, dominant, overflowing, flooding river. And so the softly flowing, gently flowing waters of Shiloh in verse 6 represent the quiet and steady provision of God for his people. But this people has refused his gentle water. Instead, they've lusted after the roaring river of Assyria and all its grandeur and glory. Verse 6 also condemns Judah for rejoicing in the demise of Syria and Israel. The word rejoice points to to a gloating rejoicing. They're rejoicing arrogantly because they fancy themselves vindicated. See, it worked just like we planned. That they think they were right to side with Tiglath-Pileser III against Rezin and Pekah. They think they chose wisely when they trusted in Assyria rather than in God. Because of their arrogance... And their faithlessness, God will bring the king of Assyria against them with all his pomp, like a swollen river whose banks are overflowing. The river that destroyed Syria and Israel will flood south into Judah. As one scholar puts it, the way, quote, the way of faith in God seems inadequate to Judah, but the worldly alternative she prefers nearly drowns her in human Oppression, end quote. Judah will only survive by standing on tiptoe, as it were, to keep her head above the water. The water will rise to her neck, verse 8 says, 
which means that the Assyrians will nearly completely overrun Judah. The flooding river would, would love to consume Judah. That was the goal of Syria and Assyria, to, to consume Judah's head, Jerusalem. But God would stop it, in part, or in main, through the faithfulness of Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. You might remember that story. So um, the events that this prophesies are recorded in Isaiah 36 and 37. That'd be a good, those would be good chapters for you to read as a supplement to the sermon this afternoon, perhaps. Isaiah 36 and 37 is where Judah escapes complete annihilation by the skin of her teeth. And you'll get to read there where the angel of the Lord kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And then those events take, us, take you up through 701 B.C. Well, back to our text in Isaiah 8. This takes us to the third movement in Isaiah 8, 1 to 10. Movement 1 was Assyria will destroy Judah's enemies. Movement 2, Assyria will destroy Judah. Movement 3, Assyria will be destroyed by God. And we see this in verses 9 and 10. Because of Emmanuel's future triumph, because of God's presence with his people, because he's not going to forsake his people forever, the enemies of God who gather against his people will be shattered, the text says. They'll be crushed along with their head, the ancient serpent. Any nation who makes plans to destroy God's people will itself be destroyed. Even if God is using it as an instrument to judge his people, he'll come back around and destroy those God-haters as well. The last two Hebrew words in verse 10 are the same last two Hebrew words in verse 8. Emanu el. It's identical at the end of verse 8 and the end of verse 10. You can see in your Bibles most translations Translate one, Emmanuel, and the other one, God is with us. It's the same word. Because God is with us, he is for us. And because God is for us, he will deliver us from our enemies. But who is this us? Who is the us in God with us? Who are the ones that God is with and therefore for? The rest of Isaiah 8 explains this, answers this question for us. Isaiah 8 contrasts the road to life with the road to destruction. The road to life is the way of light, and the road to destruction is the way of gloomy thick darkness. The road to life is described in at least seven ways, and the road to destruction is described in at least six ways in Isaiah 8. And for the remainder of the sermon, we'll look at the seven characteristics of the road to eternal life and the six characteristics of the road to eternal destruction. And these, these characteristics are intertwined throughout the passage so we'll, we'll try to pull them apart and consider each one. So let's, let's start by looking at the seven characteristics of the road 
to eternal life. Number one, the road to eternal life is a life in God's strong grip. Verse 11, Isaiah says that the Lord spoke to him with a strong hand. Literally, with the power of the hand. With the force of the hand. God's strong grip on Isaiah is like the strong hand that a, that a good, loving father puts on the shoulder of his toddler son to keep him from running out into the street or to guide him in certain situations when words aren't able to be spoken. The power of God's hand signifies his presence and his guidance and his restraining In verse 11, the power of Yahweh's hand instructed Isaiah not to walk. It restrained Isaiah from walking in the way of sinners. The the strong hand of Jesus holds us and guides us all the way to heaven. In John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the hand of God that has a hold on us. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 2, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. He's he's laid hold of us first, and then our response is to lay hold of him. But it's his strong hand that keeps us, preserves us to the end. The road to eternal life is a life in the strong grip of Christ, our God. Number two, the road to eternal life is a life of listening attentively to God's word. So God not only put his strong hand on Isaiah, but he also spoke to Isaiah. He instructed me, verse 6 says, that I should not walk in the way of, his, of this people, saying, and then Isaiah goes on to record God's words. To him. We live by God's word. Jesus says that his sheep listen to his voice. We listen to his words. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. God's word keeps us, restrains us from walking in the counsel of the wicked, from standing in the way of sinners, and from sitting in the seat of scoffers. It keeps us delighting in him. Because we're delighting in his law. God's word is the stream of water that causes us to yield fruit in its season. God's word grounds us so that we're not susceptible to conspiracy theories. Look at Isaiah 8, 12. It says, do not say a conspiracy concerning all this people can call a conspiracy. If you find yourself being tossed to and fro by conspiracy theories, the solution is to stop turning to foolishness and to ground yourself in the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Look also at Isaiah eight sixteen. God tells Isaiah, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. God's disciples are those whose hearts have been sealed by God's testimony and laws. 
verse 20 says, to the law and to the testimony. That's, that's the cry of a disciple of God. The way that leads to heaven, to everlasting life, is the way that's bound on the left and on the right by the, by the pure words of God. Does Scripture have your heart? Do you love the laws and the testimonies and the statutes of God? Do you love submitting yourselves to them? Has your heart been sealed by the sacred writings of the faith? The road to eternal life is a life of listening to God's word. Number three, the road to eternal life is a life of separation from the world. As one preacher put it, we march to the beat of a heavenly drummer. As the end of verse 12 says, we're not afraid of human threats. We're not troubled by what the world is troubled by. You see, believers don't really have anything fundamentally in common with unbelievers. Seems like a strong statement. But Paul says it, and I'll read that verse in just a second. We don't watch what believers, unbelievers watch. We don't listen to what unbelievers listen to. We don't love what unbelievers love. We don't do the things that unbelievers do. That's what that beginning of Psalm 1 is talking about. Sinners and scoffers and the wicked. We don't sit with them. We don't walk with them. We don't stand with them. 2 Corinthians six fourteen to 17 Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. How many unclean things are in your heart because they're on your screens and your devices and it's because you love the things that the world loves? Are the things that you watch and listen to and love different from what the world watches and listens to and loves? Are you as different from the world as you ought to be? Is there a separation there that should be able to be seen by others? The road to eternal life is a life of separation from the world. Number four, the road to eternal life is a life of fearing God above all else. Isaiah 8.13, The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Verses 12 and 13 say, in essence, if you fear God, you won't need to fear anything else. But if you don't fear God, you'll need to fear everything else. Ahaz and Judah feared Syria and Israel. And Isaiah 7, 2 says their hearts shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. 
They could have avoided experiencing this paralyzing fear by putting their trust in God alone. The fear of God is the fear that drives out all other fears. The dread of God is the dread that drives out all other dreads. Do you fear man more than God? Do you worry what others think more than you worry about what God thinks? Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The road to eternal life is a life of fearing God above all else. Number five, the road to eternal life is a life lived in the safety of God's sanctuary, his temple, his holy place. The beginning of verse 14 says he will be as a sanctuary. For those who fear him, God is a sanctuary, a refuge, a safe haven, a safe place to go. When the waters rise in the banks of the great river, overflow, God is like Noah's ark in the flood. God doesn't guarantee your physical safety, but he ensures your spiritual safety. Your life in this world may be cut short, but your life in the world to come will last forever because because you have taken shelter in God, because you have taken shelter in the atoning work of Christ on the cross for your sins. Hebrews 10:19. We have confidence to enter the holy of holies through the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9:24. Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. The road to eternal life is a life lived in the safety of God's sanctuary. Number six, the road to eternal life is a life of seeking the light of God. Look with me at Isaiah eight nineteen. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. When unbelievers need guidance, they're driven to places of darkness because their hearts are dark. They're driven to places where there is no light at all, as the text says. But we seek God. Believers seek God who is light. 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. None. The road to eternal life is a life of seeking the light of God. Finally, number seven. The road to eternal life is a life of faith in God. Verse 17 says, I will wait on the Lord 
who hides his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. God's message to King Ahaz back in verse 9 was if you are firm in your faith, if you're not firm in your faith, you won't be firm at all. Romans 10.11 says, whoever believes in him, in Jesus Christ, will not be put to shame. They will be firm. The road to eternal life is a life of faith in our God, Jesus Christ. Now, in contrast to this, the road to destruction is also laid out for us. In Isaiah 8. So let's turn our attention now to the six characteristics of the road to eternal destruction. Number one, the road to eternal destruction is a life of rejecting God's gentle, flowing provision. Verse 6 These people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly. And this was a river that f- flowed into Jerusalem. Jeremiah 2.13 puts it this way. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Unbelievers thirst, but they reject God's living water. They would rather drink from the waters of the world, which cannot quench their thirst and which will ultimately drown them. The road to eternal destruction is a life of rejecting God's gentle, flowing provision. Number two, the road to eternal destruction is a life of self-deception and self-righteousness. Verse 6 says that apostate Judah rejoiced in the downfall of Syria and Israel. And instead of this kind of rejoicing, they should have been, they should have taken this opportunity to turn inward and to examine themselves and to repent of the sins that were going to lead to their downfall. There'll be many unbelievers on Judgment Day who were not convinced in this life that they were unbelievers. Because they were too busy convincing themselves of their righteousness. Too busy vindicating themselves. Justifying themselves. And they never got around to actually repenting. Listen to Luke 15, excuse me, 13, 1 to 5. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The road to, dis- uh, to eternal destruction is a life of self-deception and self Righteousness. Number three, the road to eternal destruction is a life of stumbling over God and being offended by God. 
Isaiah 8, 14, and 15 say he will be as a sanctuary, but he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, as a trap and a snare to, his inhabit- to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble, they shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. This is the people of God, the chosen ones that God is saying this about. Andrew Davis wrote an insightful exposition of this chapter that I got many of my insights and ideas from, and and I'm going to quote him here. He says, Instead of fleeing to Christ for salvation, people stumble over the stumbling stone. Romans 9.32 They can't believe in the doctrine of the incarnation and are offended by the cross. So they end up being crushed by him and snared by him rather than being saved by him. End quote. The road to eternal destruction is a life of stumbling over God and being offended by God. Number four, the road to eternal destruction is a life of casting about for spiritual guidance. People are spiritual beings. We all are. And if they reject the one true God, they'll look for spiritual significance and guidance elsewhere. In verses 19 and 20, it speaks of those who run after the mediums and wizards and the necromancers instead of going to God's instructions and testimonies and laws. They reject God's word to go after the chirping and the muttering of those demonic voices. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. When a person is spiritually dead, he can't understand the things that come from the Spirit of God. So he goes elsewhere. He must go elsewhere. He was made to look, to seek. And if he doesn't seek God, he will seek other gods. The road to eternal destruction is a life of casting about for spiritual guidance. Number five, the road to eternal destruction is a life of restless roaming and spiritual starvation. The ESV translates the first part of Isaiah 21 this way, or I'll just quote the whole verse. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. In this way, unbelievers are like the, the restless demons that roam to and fro, seeking rest. Jesus says in Matthew twelve, forty three, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Are you being fed by God? Are you resting in Christ or are you roaming? The road to eternal destruction is a life of restless roaming and spiritual starvation. Finally, number six. 
The road to eternal destruction is a life that will end in thick darkness. Verse 22, one translation puts it this way. Look to the earth and behold the stress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is a deep darkness, outer darkness. On judgment day, these people will be on Jesus' left side. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 30. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The road to eternal destruction is a life that will end in thick darkness. And the only way out of this thick darkness, the only road out, is Christ, Jesus, the God-man who came to save us, his people, from their sins, as Matthew says. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the bright light in the midst of this gloom and dark message in Isaiah 8. Maybe hard to see here. It was certainly hard for the first readers to see, but we know the end of the story. Emmanuel did come. The prophecy was fulfilled. The child was born. And he saved us by dying for us, by propitiating God's wrath for us. Well, our sermon text ends on a note of thick darkness. Last word there is darkness or thick darkness, as one translation puts it. And so will my sermon end on a note of darkness. The darkness lingered for 700 years until Emmanuel finally came. We'll let it linger until next week. Next Sunday, we'll see how the light of the virgin sun breaks in and it drives out the thick darkness. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to make a road, a way for us to have eternal life with you. Thank you for sending him to make for us a home in heaven. Thank you for saving us from the road to eternal destruction. And increase our faith so that we can respond to your grace by laying hold of Christ and his promises, even as, even as he has laid hold of us. Help us this week to walk in your spirit. In the name and for the sake of Jesus, amen.